We talked about last time we were together that it was the Lord's Supper uh, and then our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then we talked about the fact that we, we would do it in remembrance of him. That's what makes it the Lord's Supper. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, those who are just getting on. Um, and then the O is the object lesson summary, that what the tabernacle is in the Old Testament in the summary of redemption, the Lord's Supper is the New Testament object lesson in the summary of redemption. The R stands for reality and the fact that Jesus Christ is just as really present with us when we partake of the Lord's Supper as he was with the disciples at the Passover. And his work in reality is just as present with us as it was to the disciples. And if you don't have that sense, ask God to make it real to you because it involves your sight, it involves your smell, your hearing, your taste, and your touch all brought together in the Lord's Supper. We discussed that last time we were together. And then the D is the fact that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a delight. It's not a funeral. It is a festival. We are celebrating the Lord's death. And even he himself, knowing that he was about to face the punishment of bearing the sins of the world, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it's not a time of grieving. It is a time of rejoicing. He gives thanks for the bread, even though he knows that the bread represents his body broken for us. His body was about to be broken and he gives thanks. And then he gives thanks for the cup, knowing what the cup meant, his blood going to be shed. And Psalms 11:6, I told you last time, gives us a picture of the cup that Christ drank, the cup of the wicked. And he gave thanks for those things. And then he sang a song. And he sang probably the, the uh, Egyptian Hallel. That is the psalm, Psalm 115 through 118. They always sang that at the close of the Passover, and Christ sang that. And one of the verses in Psalm 118 says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We often use that as uh, just a reminder to rejoice in every day that God brings us. But Jesus was specifically using it in rejoicing in the day, the day of his crucifixion. He was rejoicing and being glad in it. And then we talked about Psalm 40, I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. How God longs to lead us past just the endurance of his will, of doing it as a duty or as a burden. Ask God to make it a delight in your life simply because it's the will of God. It may not be a delightful thing, but our spirit can delight in it because it is God's will. That is where we stopped last time. And uh, so let's pick up with the S, the first S in the word Lord's apostrophe S. And that reminds us of the simplicity of the Lord's Supper. You know, Jesus and his disciples were poor. Christ said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And I know that he had a garment that was worth something because they gambled to have it. But as a general rule, his disciples were poor. They didn't have the money to pay taxes. And Jesus told the disciples to go down and uh, uh, told Peter to go fish and get enough to pay their taxes. And when Jesus even turned the bread, barley, cheap, common bread of the people, Jesus was a people's man. And uh, I, I'm not using my, my pulpit here, so to speak, to bash other religions, but there is an elaborateness and a wealth to churches, particularly certain denominations, Catholicism and some others, that are, are contrary to the ministry of Christ. Now, I, I know there's a fine line there. I, 
I know that in America, you know, it's I don't feel it's wrong to, to build a nice building and to have decent things, but we can cross a line in regards to some of those things. Jesus and his disciples were poor, and the Lord's Supper is a poor thing. It is a simplistic thing, and uh, we need to be careful about making it too ornate because we are supposed to enter into remembering him, and anything that would be a distraction to those things, anything that would be a distraction to remembering him would, would, uh, would be a hindrance to what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about, and um, it, it's just about faith. It's about faith. That's all it is. Believing him and remembering him. And if we need some things to help us and encourage us in that, some, some trappings maybe, parts of the ordinance, okay, all right, but just don't lose the simplicity of what it is. It's Jesus and his broken body and his poured out blood for us. Uh, John chapter 6 talks about eating Jesus Christ, the faith of feeding on Christ. John chapter 4 talks about drinking Jesus Christ. He is the living water, and his blood is shed for us. And these things are all just part of that simplicity. And however you celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you've got beautiful golden-tiered uh, trays of juice and bread, that's fine. Silver, I've seen some beautiful wooden ones, things like that. That's fine. That's fine. But don't lose the simplicity. Christ is humble disciples, fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors all seated down together, publicans all seated together, just breaking bread and drinking the cup in remembrance of him. And whenever we celebrate it, there ought to be a simplicity to it. And don't let the ornateness of our human nature likes to add all of these things subtract from just remembering Jesus as God in the flesh, in simple flesh, common Man, born in a manger, lived in Nazareth, Nazareth, all around in Galilee, just a simple man. The second S deals with the self-examination necessary for the Lord's Supper. 28 and 29, we've touched on it a little bit before, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 reminds us to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. Prove our own selves. Know you not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. All right, so the reason why I read that verse in 2 Corinthians is because almost always as a child and a young person when I went to church and they, they took a moment of time so that we might examine ourselves. And normally that examination was to see if you had any unconfessed sin in your life. And that certainly is part of taking it unworthily because I really can't go forward in remembering Jesus Christ if I won't deal with the sin that drives the division between he and I. You know, if, if there's somebody in the church that you won't forgive, you shouldn't take communion. Uh, because how can you remember the Christ who forgave you if you won't forgive your brother? There's clear admonition in Scripture in regards to that. Examine yourself and deal with those things. If you're living in open sin, hey, if you're, can I just be plain? If you're shacking up with somebody, don't take communion. Don't take the Lord's Supper, all right? Don't take it. That would be taking it in the wrong spirit, all right? If you know you're, you're, you're stealing from somebody, if you're doing wrong, if you're using on the side, if you, there's obvious things in your life that are wrong that you've not dealt with with the Lord, then, then don't take the Lord's Supper, all right? Examine yourself and make sure. But that's not the primary context 
of what Paul is saying, right? He's telling us, as he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to examine yourself to make sure you are in the faith, all right? Because if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, the very first thing you would have to know is, are you a believer? Otherwise, it's not the Lord's Supper. It, it would be the, the hypocrite's supper. That's what it would be. You've got to be a, a believer of Jesus Christ. That's the primary thing. An unbeliever taking the Lord's Supper is definitely taking it unworthily, right? And the first examination is, am I really in? Am I his child? Am I a believer? And then not just am I a believer, the second aspect of that is see that you are in the faith. Are you living a life of faith, of belief? Are you going on in your Christian walk? You're not stagnant. You're pressing forward. You're attempting to know more. You're, you're pressing forward to grasp those things of faith. That's what he's talking about. Make sure that you are in the faith and that you're living an attitude of faith, that the, your walk with God is a current thing, that it is a vibrant, alive participation in the faith. And then, of course, that definitely would deal with the fact of whether or not you have any unconfessed sin in your life. But when you approach the Lord's Supper, make sure you examine yourself. You say, well, Dusty, I know I'm saved. Well, let me remind you that it's never wrong to make your calling and election a sure thing. To go back, analyze these steps, how you know you're in, how you know you belong to God. And if you are a believer, all to fill your heart with joy and wonder as you just drive that stake in the ground and anchor yourself to it, knowing that Christ's finished work is enough. That'll encourage your heart, and then it'll lead you forward into confession, getting right with God, and understanding things so that you can take the Lord's Supper with the right attitude. The you of supper reminds us of the unlimited truth, the infinite truth found in the Lord's Supper, right? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us to grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the primary ways is through the Lord's Supper. I mean, his death and his shedding of his blood, his broken body, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those things together. Do you know all there is to know about those things? Have you really, really analyzed all of the steps of what the atonement means? Not just its penal, uh, penal substitutionary death, but the victory that he won for us, the healing that he brought us, all of those things wrapped up in those various aspects of the atonement. So many things to study. I, I mean, I've been to school a little bit, and I just feel like I'm scratching the surface of what lies before us. It's, it's almost like, you know, I've waded out into the Pacific Ocean, vastest ocean on earth. I've waded out into it. And because I've dedicated my life through study, I'm not very far along in the Word of God, but I'm probably farther along in my knowledge of the Bible than just an average churchgoer, probably, because of the schooling I've had to take. It's not everybody needs school, but Brother Dusty does, definitely. And so let's just say that I am, I am chest deep in my knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you just got saved, so you would just be ankle deep. You'd be in the surf a little bit. And maybe a nominal Christian who's been to church most of his life, let's say he's knee deep or waist deep. I'm chest deep. There are others I know who have gone on out, and they're neck deep, further along than I am. What is that to the Pacific Ocean? Being six feet deep. It's scary. Yeah, maybe. But... 
compared to the vastness that yet lies before you, what is six feet? And how foolish of it would be of me to turn around and make fun of people who are knee-deep when I'm chest-deep because I know so much about God now. I'm looking him right in the eye. You don't even begin to fathom the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and the fact that you were just knee-deep or neck-deep or chest-deep in the Pacific Ocean, and there are parts of that we have never yet explored as human beings that's how God is. And as we look at the infinite truth of the Lord's Supper, it ought to just want to lead us on into understanding what his atonement meant for us, what his death did for us, what his blood covered for us, what his resurrection accomplished, what he's doing now and ascending for us and praying for us at the Father's right hand. There is an unlimited truth, and it all begins right here. So don't make it just some addendum to a service where they tack it on and you take the bread, you take the cup, and you don't think about it anymore. Allow it to lead you on in understanding of what Christ did for you. And so when you do have those times of remembrance of taking the cup, you enter into it in a deeper and fuller way because you understand things you have never understood before. It is an unlimited truth. And one of the things about heaven, I believe, this is my personal opinion, is that when we get there, we will know more than we know now. But I don't think we'll know everything. I think we'll spend all of eternity studying and learning about the unfathomableness, unfathomableness of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who they are and, and how they work together. That's what we need to know. And um, we rest in those things. Now, that is the unlimited truth. The P is the preparation, the approach to the Lord's Supper with a prepared heart. So, Brother Dusty, can we just talk about this in the examination? It's, it's more than that. See, when should I confess my sin and get right with God in preparation for the Lord's Supper? Not when we bow our heads for a few minutes before we take the bread. That ought to be done a day or two ahead of time. I, I ought to come to that service with a heart already prepared. The sad thing is, is that we have a whole lot of preachers who barely prepare for their sermons. They kind of get up and are just content to throw things together, use something they preached before. And I, I know sometimes there's a place for that. I, I get all that. I get all that. But they ought to be prepared. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you ought to be prepared. If you're working at Wana, you ought to be prepared. If you're doing a small group, be prepared. People are investing their time. They ought to have something worth listening to when they come together. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't we not prepare when we're going to sit down and take a chance to remember Jesus Christ? Our confession of sin ought to proceed, proceed the Lord's Supper. And if when we have it at Liberty Church, we ought to announce it in advance so that people have time to come in with prepared hearts. And you know, it just changes everything. As a preacher, what usually happens in a service is that we spend a lot of our time singing, trying to get people in the place they need to be so they can receive the Word of God. And finally, by the end of the church service, they're halfway ready now to hear something. When people ought to come to church already prepared, hearts are already spent time with God. The church is not where you go to eat. It ought to be just the addition because you've been eating all week long. You go to church ready to give out and to, to help and to aid, not just be a consumer. Show up. What programs do you have for me? What can you do? How can you bless me? What kind of songs are you going to sing to encourage me? Where do I stick these kids? Come ready to serve because you have been prepared before. And the Lord's table is no different. You ought to approach it in preparation.
And then the second P in supper is, I, I find in second, 1 Corinthians 11, 26, I'll show what I mean. For as often as you eat this drink, drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. I call it preaching Christians because the term show is used elsewhere in the, in the New Testament for the word to preach or to proclaim. You are proclaiming the Lord's death. You are showing the world around you what you believe in when we take in the Lord's table. It is to preach his death. And Paul said this is the whole gospel. Christ crucified, buried, and rose again. That's the gospel that I preach. And you're preaching as a Christian every time you remember. All right? And then letter E in supper. The expected aftermath. What happened to Christ and his disciples after they had this time together at the Passover? This part that we call the Lord's Supper. They faced Great opposition from Satan. Satan entered into Judas. Peter denied the Lord. The disciples scattered everywhere. Christ attacked and crucified, and the world turned against him. If that happened to them when they remembered the Lord, then we can expect it to happen to us. And it is our faith that Satan chiefly assaults. It's faith in Christ. And any time we go and remember something that increases our faith and encourages us, we can expect the aftermath from Satan as well. He's always working against us. We're not ignorant of his devices. We understand he's the accuser of the brethren. We expect certain things from him. But we are well prepared because our great high priest ever lives to intercede for us. And we rest in his new covenant promises and let Satan do what he will. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's how we ought to face it. But don't be unprepared for it. Expect it. Expected. And then the, the R in supper is the return of Christ. Now, please understand. Is it us? Where is, where is the return of Christ? You have never really experienced the Lord's supper, communion, until you have gone through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ. It is just as much a part of it. Spurgeon called the Lord's supper the revelation. They play in the early morning to wake the troops up. And how long should we celebrate this thing? He says, celebrate it till I come. Well, that's the ticket, till he comes. In fact, in Matthew 26, and you can look again, I think he says in Luke uh, chapter 22, he said, I will not drink of this cup again till I drink it new with you, the disciples and all of those who come to him, in my Father's kingdom. That's what he's saying. He said, I want to drink this with you in my Father's kingdom. So in reality, we call that the Last Supper. It wasn't the Last Supper. <laughs> no, the Last Supper is going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right? And that will just continue on. But that, that's the Last Supper. This one, the Last Supper. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. That's the last one before the cross. But I will not drink it again with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And I will drink it with you in the kingdom. And in Luke 22, he says, with desire, I have desire to drink this with you. And that... That word is what we call an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means this, with great longing, with great longing, I desire to drink this with you disciples in my Father's kingdom. It was true when he said it then. It's true when he says it now. Jesus Christ has a great longing to celebrate the marriage supper with all of the Christians of all time around his Father's throne. He longs to do that. And the Lord's Supper ought to bring us to that point of remembrance when we focus on the fact that Jesus died for us, he loves us, he's returning for us, and he longs to finish what he has started. It's finished in the mind of God, but to carry it out in time 
so that we'll be all together with him around the throne. John 17 says that he wills that those that God has given him be with him where he is, that they may behold his glory because God loved him before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants to show us his glory, what he won for us in salvation, and to drink that cup in fellowship at the table. And uh, I, I, I've been to some good family reunions before, but I've never been to one quite like that. So as you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you think about the Lord's Supper, think about these things. Meditate on this little acrostic. May it help you enter in in a fuller and deeper way next time you get to celebrate that at the church that you attend. Now, I, I want to start a, a new program. Let me see how much time we got. All right, about 10 minutes, all right? We're going to be talking about the enemy of the abuse of spiritual gifts. Now, in our list of enemies, this is enemy number seven. Remember that the Apostle Paul is responding in a letter to the church at Corinth in response to a letter of questions that they wrote to him. And so he's responding to questions that they had, and he's dealing with some things, and it's not exactly the kind of letter that you get. But chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 deal with spiritual gifts. A lot of people ask me about these things. And so I'm going to take some time here, and um, I am going to deal with it kind of in an overall way, and then I'm going to come down and deal with it in some detail, all right? I get specifically asked a lot of times about speaking in tongues. And that's only one of the sign gifts, but that's the one I get asked about the most. And so I promise I will deal with that. That will probably take us a whole 30-minute session to talk about um, because I believe the Bible is very plain about those things. But I want to deal with it, first of all, in general as a whole first. And so we come to chapter 12, which obviously follows chapter 11. And chapter 11, uh, chapter 12 gives us the summary of spiritual gifts in regards to the unity of them. And it deals with it in two ways. It gives us the cause of the unity and it illustrates the unity. The cause of the unity, of course, is the Holy Spirit and the illustration of the unity is the human body. And you can read through that on your own and we're going to talk about that more in detail. But please don't miss that the summary of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the unity of spiritual gifts. Now, I don't know which gift you have, but here's what I want to tell you, that the true gifts of the Spirit contribute to the unity of Christ's body, not the division of Christ's body. And if they are contributing to the division of Christ's body, one or two things is true. Number one, the gift is not a true gift. Or number two, it's being abused. It's a true gift and it's being abused because it contributes to the unity of the body of Christ. All right? And... We live in a world of such disunity. We expect it in the world, but among God's people. And uh, I posted something on Facebook the other day asking this question. If Jesus and I are friends, and you and Jesus are friends, why can't you and I be friends? Because I have a lot of Christians who are not friends. They're not friendly. And I had a guy respond. He said, well, the problem is, he said, that so many Christians are out of fellowship with the Lord and not living right that I can't fellowship with them. That's just the problem. And I wanted to remind him, I said, some of that determining that they're out of fellowship with God is out of fellowship in your estimation. Because I don't really know where they are with the Lord. I can't see all of those things. If there's some obvious signs, okay, I'll give you that. But we never have to be unfriendly. 
And I've had believers in Christ just treat me unfriendly because they disagree with my position on something. And normally the positions that they disagree about are not major points of doctrine. They're secondary points of doctrine. But we give so much weight to them, more weight than the Bible does itself, that it makes it seem like it's the primary thing, so much so that we can't really even speak to each other in public. And I, the Lord help me, maybe it's pride, but when I see those people that I know don't want to speak to me, I may get a point to speak to them. I run them down, maybe just to be awkward. I don't know, but I do. And uh, But that's the idea, is that we need to contribute to the unity as much as we are able, as much as we are able. And I know God uses various denominations to accomplish different things. I get all of that. I understand that we don't all have to be alike. We won't all be alike. And we don't have to agree. But we can always be peaceable. We can always be friendly. We can always show the love of Christ, especially to those who are in the household of faith, especially to those, even if we can't show it to those who are um, our closest to us. God commands us to show it to our enemies. We also need to show it to our friends, especially those who are saved. So a spiritual gift ought to always contribute to unity, not division. All right, so let's look at that in more detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us that the cause of unity is the Holy Spirit. And we know that so because the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name some way nine times in the first 11 verses of chapter 12. The Spirit, the same Spirit. And when he talks about the same spirit, he is emphasizing the unity. All right, let me just tell you this. The chief evidence that I'm being controlled by the Holy Spirit is that my life contributes to the unity of the body of Christ. My life contributes. That's how I know I'm being controlled by the Spirit. But they'll say, I know I'm controlled by the Spirit because I spoke in tongues. That's not necessarily so. There are people who speak in tongues and have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that later. All right? Is your life contributing to the unity of the body? If it's not, you're not controlled by the Spirit. But the dusty, I picked up a rattlesnake and didn't bite me. Praise the Lord. I went to a church in Kentucky. and uh, Yeah, well, you're an idiot, first of all, for picking up a rattlesnake. But that's not proof that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Proof that you're filled with the Holy Spirit is that the fruits of the Spirit are evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, temperance, meekness, faith, unity. All of those things create a right spirit. That's the control of the Spirit. That's what he produces in our life. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And when he's in control, he produces these fruits. And so just because you healed somebody, you drank some poison, all these sensational things that are proof that I got the Holy Spirit. That's not the proof. It's not the proof. We love the sensational. We pack coliseums with preachers who create the sensational. But the sensational is not the evidence that you are controlled by the Spirit. It's much more mundane and routine than that. Being controlled by the Spirit means that you walk in humility, and to create and contribute to the unity of the body because the Holy Spirit creates a sweet spirit in believers. And so it's the Holy Spirit that brings it in nine times in these first 11 verses. He illustrates that for us. Now, I got a little sandwich. I got piles of stuff I want to talk about. I just see how far I can go because I can't just stop in mid-sentence uh, in the middle of a thought. I want to keep going a little bit. Now, the illustration of unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the human body. And this whole illustration, through varying means, illustrates this, that there is unity in diversity. Every member of the human body has a role that contributes to the unity and the function. And that unity is true in the church body as well. Now, un unity is not uniformity, all right? 
You don't have to be just like I am. And we mix those two up terribly, terribly. That you have to see it like I see it. You've got to dress like I dress. You've got to do it like I do it or you're not one of us. That's not so. It's just not so. All right? The unity of the body is illustrated by the human body, and there is diversity. And as you read through the chapter, you will get that the toe is not the same as the eye, and the nose is not the same as the ear, but they all contribute together. And let one of them get out of function. Let there be disunity in your body, and you know how you feel. Well, the church of God experiences the same struggles because members are not in unity together. Each of us have our place. And it's not uniformity. Not all supposed to be alike. There is supposed to be unity, and that's illustrated for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, next time we're together, we're going to talk about the gifts particularly. In other words, natural ability, our gifts, gifts that God gives us. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, gifts that people can have, how many gifts they can have, and these types of things. If you're looking for me to tell you what your spiritual gift is, please look elsewhere, all right? I I'm not going to do that, all right? I'm going to talk about that a little bit, though, and then we'll get into more detail about tongues. Now, chapter 14 specifically deals with speaking in tongues, but you can't understand chapter 14 unless you read chapter 12 and chapter 13. 13 is the great chapter on love. Charity suffereth long and is kind. That chapter stuck right in the middle of the spiritual gifts, all right? There's a reason for that, and you cannot take that passage out of context without reading it. Don't read about what's in speaking in tongues in chapter 14 unless you've read 12 and 13. They go together. All right, so read those things. Next time we're together, we'll talk about it in more detail. Now, I can't see you. I can't hear you. But I can read what you comment. So if you comment on this video, I would greatly appreciate it. If God used something in your life, it encourages me to know that. If you like this video, like it. If you hated this video, give me an angry emoji. I don't care. I can take it. Tell me why. All right? But if you did like it and it did help you, click share. Spread the gospel around the world. Let other people know what God's doing. This is Rooted. I'm Pastor Dusty at Liberty Church in York, South Carolina. Thanks for watching.